Hi everyone, Ryan here and welcome to the 11th episode of the Stoic Advantage. Today I'm going to play an interview that I had with Michael Tremblay. Michael is a PhD student from Queen's University in Canada and he specializes in Stoic philosophy. So I was very excited to have the opportunity to speak with Michael and I really enjoyed our conversation. Just want to pre-warn you though, my audio for some reason wasn't the best. It was kind of cutting in and out and, and had a bit of feedback, so I apologize for that. But you could hear Michael nice and clear, so that's a good thing. Just a quick uh, reminder before I play the interview, if you can download the podcast episode, follow the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on, that would be great. And here is my interview with Michael Tremblay. The first question I want to ask you, I ask a lot of people this question to start is, when were you first introduced to Stoic philosophy? Great. So I think like a lot of people are kind of introduced to some concepts of Stoic philosophy at any point when they're growing up uh, or like they're, they're facing an adversity. So there, there, there's a lot of Stoicism in Western culture and our culture in a way that's kind of non-structured. And then when you, when you actually encounter the philosophy it's a way of like making a method or a structure to kind of these concepts or ideas you've encountered before so for me it was it, it was in grad school it was in philosophy grad school I was uh I wasn't really interested in ancient philosophy I was doing other stuff and uh we took a course on ancient conceptions of the self so different ways that ancient thinkers thought about the soul and about identity and we had to read some Epictetus for that and I just I I fell in love with it it was one of these moments where you know you're supposed to read 20 pages. And I, and I, I read the whole book over the, over the weekend. There was just this spark, this fire. Um, and for me, it was just this, I think it was, but I've finally seen someone, I think a lot of people have this similar experience, seeing someone putting to words, a lot of ideas or concepts that were kind of floating around in your head, but you weren't able to articulate as well and articulating them in, in kind of a system that made sense and emphasize the things that I like to be emphasized, like personal responsibility, and uh, the importance of virtue and things like this. For sure, yeah. And, and it's fascinating that a lot of this stuff comes from these ancient thinkers. It's not like you need these modern thinkers to come up with what you're feeling. They were, they're kind of time-tested um, ideas. So I'm curious, I alluded to the idea that you're a PhD candidate, and I just briefly talked about what you're studying, but I know you have a lot more detail about what you study. Can you discuss what your research focus is on? Yeah, great. So I'm, uh, I'm in the, just finished the fourth, going to the fifth year of my PhD, which will be the last year, hopefully. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I study Epictetus. So for those, depending on the level of familiarity with Stoicism, for the listeners, um, Epictetus was a, a late period Stoic. We have the discourses and the handbook by him, if you want to read those. Um, he was an educator. So he ran a school of Stoic philosophy and he taught um, young men how to be stoic and how to um, embody these kind of values. So I study him and specifically I study him as an educator. So for me, when I say that I do moral education, there's this ethical question of morality, which is this question of what is right and wrong. And then there's this psychological motivational question, which is once we know what right and wrong is, how do we become the kind of people that can successfully do those things? 
And I think in many cases, for most people, that second question is the more interesting, more difficult question. Like, I understand, you know, I should have good work ethic. I understand I should get up. I understand I should um, work hard towards what I set myself to. I should be a kind person. I should give back to others. I should check in on people. We kind of know that these, we, we, there's very little disagreement about kind of what characteristics embody um, a, a quality person. But often the most difficult part is, is motivating yourself to be that kind of person. So I'm looking at Epictetus' kind of answer to that question. How do we train ourselves? How do we approach these kind of questions such that we can successfully act well? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm um, an Ontario teacher. I teach in the public schools. And I'm curious, oh, does um, Epictetus as an educator and what he taught, does that have practical applications to the classroom, do you think? At least in yeah. post-secondary or high school? I think so. So what age do you, what age do you teach? Uh, I teach high school and I've also taught, like I teach depending semester by semester at our local college as well, English. So I teach usually anyone from say 15 up. Great. So widespread. Um, so I think absolutely. So I used to teach uh, sports. I still teach sport, but I used to teach it a lot to children. And um, I think there's a huge carryover with, with, with kids but I think, especially when you look at high school or like young adults, that's, that's really the, the main key. So the Stoics had this view that um, you, you didn't achieve reason until perhaps 14, which is kind of this, this age where you start being motivated um, exclusively by your rationality. And I mean, you can agree with that or disagree with that depending on your experience with teenagers, but um, I think that's the view. That's the view when a Stoic education would begin. So ironically, we see very little in Stoicism about how we should treat young children. There's a lot more of that in other ancient thinkers who saw it as being very important to habituate or emotionally train young kids. Stoicism tends to be more reason focused, meaning that if you if you learn something, you understand why it's right, you're going to do it. Um, and that for them was something that applied more to, to older people. So as you said, 15 plus would be kind of the perfect demographic. But yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a lot of applicability. So one thing I look at is um, that Epictetus really criticizes is kind of setting the wrong or thinking the ends of philosophy is the wrong thing. So, so um, looking to show off your knowledge of philosophy or looking to show off um, being overly intellectual. And I think this is kind of a problem that we face in, in high schools and especially facing universities where people end an education with a degree and they think that that was the point of the education. I think as long as I have the degree or perhaps they, they make it through a class and they get a high grade and they think that was the point of the education rather than the capacity to you know, successfully apply what they've learned in, in, in moral contexts, or if you want to expand it, I guess, just in, in general life contexts. So Epictetus was very concerned with this applicability of what you learned, not your capacity to show off um, in terms of grades or in terms of, um, you know, he, he has these passages where he criticizes people for bragging about how much um, of Stoic books they can recite off their head. And he's like, this is just not the point of Stoicism. Point is to, is to transform yourself, and uh, I think that I think that that applies. You can see that especially in university, but I think that applies to to any level of education. Just emphasizing with kids and teenagers and and adults that the point here should be transform yourself in your behavior. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, so I think that I think there's a huge crossover application there. Yeah, really interesting. Um, I'm curious, uh, going back to the academic setting, what does, then just moving a little away from stoicism for a moment, what does a typical day in the life of a PhD student look like? I know myself, I completed my master's and I got accepted to a PhD at Western, um, the English theory PhD, and I decided to, to turn it down and pursue a life in, in public school teaching. But what does a typical day in the life of a PhD uh, candidate look like? And what advice would you give anyone who is interested in studying philosophy at the PhD level? Yeah, great. So, um, so that what a, what a PhD looks like is is very different depending on the kind of PhD you're in. So, I can only speak primarily to a philosophy PhD. Um, so, it's it's pretty similar to undergrad. I'm going to assume most people have have or if they're thinking of a PhD, they've they've at least began their undergrad or something along these lines. So, it's similar to an undergrad in in the first year or two years in American programs. So, you do coursework, you uh, you engage with professors. The difference with a PhD, so when you're an undergrad, sometimes you take a, a variety of different courses. So when I was in philosophy, I was taking a philosophy course, but I would also take history, I'd take art history, I'd take English. When you're in a PhD, you just focus just on philosophy. So I was taking courses just on philosophy. And um, then when you get to, when you, when you pass your coursework, you get to just kind of independent study. And that's really kind of different for some people because it has to be very self-motivated. So basically you, you take a problem or an issue. So I'm interested in stoicism and you kind of find something that hasn't been talked about before. So the, the, the criteria for passing the PhD is you make an original contribution to literature. You think about something that, that nobody's thought about before. You argue something that nobody's argued before. So you find a problem like that and then you just dig into it. So for me, it's just a lot of reading books, a lot of thinking, I do also learn um, studying a lot of Greek because the I have to read the original Stoics in the original in their original languages. Um, so yeah, philosophy is weird, and that's kind of like an armchair PhD. And a lot of my time is just it's just reading and thinking. You know, people who have their PhDs in science and stuff, you're going to a lab and you're doing you're doing these kind of uh, experiments. But my experiments are are, are, are intellectual. In, in that case. So that's what it looks like. It's just a lot of, a lot of sitting and, and thinking and reading, which is great if that's what you love to do. Mm -hmm. And it probably teaches you a lot to stay disciplined, especially in the independent study portion, because if you're someone who's just waiting for uh, questions and prompts to come to you, it's all up to you at that stage. You have to uh, be the one to take the initiative to figure out what you want to do. Yeah. So to relate this back to stoicism, so a key aspect of stoicism is being motivated by virtue, right? Mm -hmm. So a key act, uh, aspect of stoicism is having your behaviors motivated by the recognition that it's the right thing to do, not by a recognition that if I do this, people will praise me, or if I do this, I'll get money, or if I do this, um, you know, I'll get uh, some sort of pleasure or some sort of like uh, material re reward. You're motivated by the knowledge that it's the right thing to do. And so a nice thing about a PhD, which, you know, it doesn't provide a lot of money, <laughs> you know, um, doesn't provide a lot of, I mean, it's nice. I get to be on a podcast with you, but it's not, uh, it's not, uh, necessarily super cool for the general public, um, all the time to be doing philosophy. It's, it's getting more popular, especially stoicism, but it's not something that, that jumps out like a, a doctor or a lawyer. Um, so you're very much motivated by the fact that, that you, you love knowledge and you love the, the acquisition of knowledge. 
Um, and everybody else around you is also motivated by that goal. So it teaches this, it does, it teaches this kind of discipline, this kind of capacity to be motivated to do something very difficult over a very long time, motivated solely by the, um, the love of knowledge and the recognition that this is like an important, good thing to do, which is, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious, you talked about stoicism having this bit of a resurgence. And I know when I was in academia doing my master's, we never even touched stoicism. It was like we studied more of the, I guess you would call them the, the post-structuralist thinkers. They were very trendy at the time. And my specialty was eco-criticism. So I read a lot of the um, environmental theorists, but we never, never talked about stoicism ever. So I'm curious why is stoicism gaining this resurgence back, I think, in popular culture. I know with Ryan Holiday and these writers, is it also as well gaining a resurgence in academia? Yeah, so great. So there's two parts to the question. So the first one is why is it uh, getting a popular resurgence? And I think the reason for this, there's a couple of reasons. Um, I think two main ones to start with is that stoicism, at least when you begin studying it, um, has a lot of really, really helpful tools and concepts that you can apply regardless of how your life is structured, right? So, you know, no matter who you are, just understand the dichotomy of control, understanding that some things are up to you, some things aren't up to you and you're better off focusing on what's up to you. That is like, that is incredibly helpful way of structuring your thoughts that um, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter the job you're doing. Doesn't matter your life situation. You can apply that and you can, you can use it. This idea of having, um, you know, stimulus reflection response, you receive an impression, you reflect upon it. And then only after you assent to it as like, this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. Do you have an emotional reaction? This idea um, this kind of a psychological principle that is, is really broken down into a clear concept by the Stoics, you can apply that no matter who you are. So I think, I think a reason as a popular resurgence is that it can help almost anybody, at least in this, in this first kind of form of just these, um, these life hacks, if you will, or these ways of conceiving of things. Um, I think another reason for the, for the resurgence is people... I mean, at least me, I'm kind of raised in this generation where, um, you know, none of the people, I'm, I'm 27, none of the people, very few of the people I grew up with were practicing in, in, in their religion, right? So mm -hmm. you kind of enter this generation where you, you, you don't really have a codified set of values or a codified sense of meaning um, because, you know, religion, at least as it is popularly practiced, is, is less prevalent. So there's a space there, there's a hole there. And so there's a search for, for some sort of codification or some sort of standard to live by. And I think stoicism um, is a very appealing one, or at least people are searching for those kind of things more often and perhaps turning to philosophy more often because of that. Um, and I think a third reason stoicism popular, so then I, I say that there's, well, there's maybe there's this gap in, in meaning and people are looking for a codified set of values to base their life around, at least start beginning constructing virtue and character. But then why do people turn to Stoicism? And I think the reason for that is that they were, um, if you read any Stoic texts, you read Epictetus, you read Seneca, they were very, very applied. You know, a lot of Seneca's letters, he's writing to people who have died and are grieving. He's helping them through their grief. Epictetus is doing the same thing. He's working with students who want to be better. And he's working with kind of anecdotes and stories in their own lives. 
And these stories are very motivational and very inspirational for people that, that read them. I mean, you try to read Stoicism compared to Aristotle um, or even Plato, and you know, good luck getting. I still find Aristotle quite quite boring in certain mm. regards, right? So if you're a normal person, you're just not going. You're going to say, oh, maybe there's something cool here, and you're just not going to be motivated by it. But you turn to the Stoics and the way they write and the way they evoke, you know, like Marcus Aurelius's meditations. It's all just so applied and applicable. Um, yeah, so I think those kind of those three features. Um, I don't know if you wanted to jump in there, if you wanted me to go to the second part. Uh, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I think I've seen people talking about the idea of uh, the absence of religion being a big idea because a lot of people you have, like you said, these kind of time-tested um, principles. And if you don't have this identity that allows you to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to think of maybe the sage, for example, and what does it look like to to strive towards an ideal? If it's just you have these kind of loosey-goosey principles that are just sporadically spread out, you know, a lot of people need that identity to help them strive towards a certain goal. So I totally see the the religion aspect as well as the other aspects. Yeah, so the second part was, and I'm curious because I'm a little removed from academia the last few years, um, has it had a resurgence in academia? Have you seen other students who are, who are saying, oh, I want to study and specialize in stoicism as well are there professors who who look at stoicism a lot in the philosophy field yeah great so i don't you know surprisingly maybe not surprisingly depending on your perception of academia there's quite a bit of a, a disparity between public opinion and what academics take to be interesting mm-hmm. um so you know if you if you go in and you study ancient philosophy, so if you go into a PhD program in philosophy, philosophy, I, I also do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I'm really into martial arts. And I, I think philosophy, you probably experienced the same thing in English. Philosophy for me is like martial arts. It's like, you know, you have one person's doing Tai Chi, one person's doing Taekwondo, one person's doing Aikido. And, you know, they might all be martial artists, but they, they have so little to do with each other, or, you know, they don't think the other person, what the other person's doing is real, is real martial arts. And there's all these kind of disagreements and infighting. Um, so academic philosophy is kind of like that. You have this huge disparity between, you know, some people are doing contemporary political theory, some people are doing, um, you know, phenomenology and continental philosophy, and some people are doing ancient philosophy. And then within ancient philosophy, really Plato and Aristotle are the most popular, and I don't see them ever becoming less popular. Those are really the people that are dominating. And a big part of that is just that they wrote so much. We just have so much from them. We have very little um, of the Stoics. You know, you could probably get everything that, you know, the Stoics, all the Stoics have ever written that we have left on a bookshelf, you know, one shelf. Uh, you know, I study Epictetus and I'm, I'm holding a, you know, 400 page book right now. And that's all we have on them. That's it. Mm-hmm. Right. So part of the reason is that in, in academia, you want to spend your entire life digging into something. Um, the more of it there is, the better. Now, for popular reasons, that doesn't really stop you, right? If you're not going to spend... 50 years studying stoicism, you're just going to read about it for a couple of years and you're going to take these values and you're going to carry them with you. Then, you know, a 400 page book that you can really dig into is more, more than enough. But no, I wouldn't say, I would say there's, there's a bit of a rise in popularity, but nothing like it has been in a contemporary aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason for that is that stoicism helps with contemporary problems, right? Like people, people who are faced with problems outside of academia are turning to stoicism and stoicism mm-hmm. helps with those problems. Um, so it makes sense that those people are becoming more interested in it in a way that is, is not necessarily reflected 
in, in academia. Although that's not to say there's not, there's obviously great work going on in stoicism in academia, but it hasn't risen in popularity the same way it has outside of it. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Um, you talked about the dichotomy of control. I'm curious, do you practice any other stoic principles and practices? And if so, which ones do you find yourself using most? Yeah, great. So I'm, I'll, I'll talk about this because I'm not sure people's levels of experience if they're reading this or listening to this. Mm. Um, for me, so the dichotomy of control is a way, I, I do this all the time, right? It's a, it's a way of conceptualizing things in the world. So it says that, you know, there are things that are, that are up to you. In other words, the, the outcome of them is determined, is determined by you. And there's things that are not up to you. And that what we are better off doing both for our psychological well-being, for our effectiveness, um, for those two factors, we are better off focusing on the things that are up to us. We become the kind of person that focuses on our choices, our thoughts, um, our behaviors, but not necessarily the results of our behaviors, but just our immediate behaviors. If we focus on these, we'll be happier, less anxious, um, and more effective in the things we aim to do. Um, that's, a, that's a great concept. I employ that all the time. Now, obviously, there's going to be times that I'm going to deviate from that and think, well, you know, look, if somebody that I care about is, is you know, going through something, I'm going to care about that. But I'm going to do it cautiously. I'm only going to let in things outside of that, that dichotomy, you know, intentionally and cautiously. That's the thing I employ all the time. Another concept is, is, is this idea of, of mindfulness. So, Stoicism has this cognitive view of emotions and motivation, which says that we, we feel emotions and we're motivated when um, we make value judgments about the world, right? So if I view something to be bad, I'm going to be afraid of it if it's present. I'm going to be anxious of it if I think it might occur and so on and so forth. And I'm going to be motivated to, to try to get away from it and try to resolve the problem and get rid of the bad thing. Um, so, so one thing that this causes or this encourages a mindfulness, and this, this, this view is backed up by contemporary psychotherapy and contemporary neuroscience, that the way we view things and the value judgments we give influence our, our emotions and our, and our behaviors. So one thing this encourages is an incredible mindfulness of just what kind of value judgment am I, am I giving um, to things? And, and am I giving a value judgment that I believe to be true? And also encourages um one thing that i do a lot is a reverse engineering of my emotional life so before i studied stoicism i had a lot of difficulty figuring out and navigating my emotions and my feelings i think because often i, I had a view of them as something that was to be repressed or pushed down or especially negative ones of like jealousy or envy or anger it was just like just get rid of those and now stoicism kind of encourages this reverse engineering. It's like, it's a symptom, right? It's a symptom of a sickness, an illness. And you gotta, you don't ignore the symptom and just medicate it. You have to figure out what the, what the illness is. So if I'm feeling anger or envy or jealousy, what is the value judgment that's producing that emotion? And do I want to get rid of it? Or is it true? Um, or is there a different way that I could look at the situation? So I would say those kind of those three practices. So that cognitive of control, mindfulness in the moment, and um, a reverse engineering or, or an attempt to be uh, deconstruct and understand my emotional life are the three practices that I use most consistently. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And I know one that I've started to use, especially in the classroom, I think Marcus Aurelius talks about it, it at the beginning of the meditations when he's reflecting how other people are going to cause him possible harm and that there are times where they don't know that they're actually doing that. They don't, they're not in control of their emotions. So even understanding that someone may lash out at you, but it's not because they hate you. It's because they're dealing with something else possibly. And therefore they're projecting that on you in the form of anger or resentment. So for sure, those are some interesting practices. I think that anyone can, uh, can apply to their life. Um, yeah, that's go ahead. Also, I just want to follow up on that. Cause that's so great. That was so helpful for me. The first time I read Marcus Reyes. Mm-hmm. So a reflection of this cognitive, this view of emotion, which is this view that like you were going to feel things and be motivated towards things and reflections to how you view the world is just an incredible sense of empathy and forgiveness for other people. Marcus Reyes says this, like people do what they do because they're ignorant, mm-hmm. right? They do things because they think it's the right thing to do and they're mistaken, mm-hmm. um, but they still think it. And like anybody else, if you thought that was the right thing to do, you'd do that too. Um, so yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's what an incredible way to forgive other people and see them as just ignorant um, or mistaken, but not um, you know, vicious or bad in some sort of core fundamental way. Um, yeah, that, that, that has been incredibly helpful for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, you've probably heard some stoic myths, such as how uh, someone who practices stoicism maybe represses their emotions rather than deals with them. What are some stoic myths that you'd wish to dispel for those who may be approaching stoicism for the, for the, for the, sorry, the first time, and they're thinking, well, I've heard these, these ideas of stoicism, which I don't think are healthy. What are some myths you think are, are good to dispel? Yeah, great. I think that like, um, I think that most of the myths of stoicism involve this kind of mistaken conception that we can become a sage overnight. So I think most of the myths or problems of stoicism is they look at what the sage is and the sage is someone who doesn't experience um, extreme emotions, extreme negative emotions, the sage is someone who deals with all situations, um, you know, as well as they can, given the opportunities and the circumstances they have. They have um, sage is someone who is like prepared for death and not anxious by it or not anxious of, of other things to come. And they think, okay, you know, I've been studying stoicism or I've read about it. I'm going to now do this. And I think that like a lot of the myths and the problems is thinking that that is the way that is how you become a stoic is you just decide to overnight instead of like any other model of like training or education where it's a thing that you set yourself to for a number of years and you fail at and you fail again and you fail again and you forgive yourself for failing. You know, I think there's this, so one thing you see, for example, is people think, Oh, well, I just shouldn't have emotions or I shouldn't have extreme or negative emotions. And it's like, well, maybe not after, you know, 30 years of hard dedicated solo practice, but you are going to have negative emotions because you are flawed. Like we're all flawed. Marcus Aurelius was flawed. Epictetus was flawed. Seneca, none of these people claim to be a sage. So this, I, so what happens typically, I don't know if it's so much a myth, but so much as a mistake in people's progress is they, they ignore their own ignorance and downfall by trying to like suppress it and push it down. Like I said, they have a, they have a feeling. I know I did this a lot. They have a negative feeling and they try to pretend like, well, I know it shouldn't be there. So um, it's not there. 
but they're not acknowledging that, that you know it is there so there is some sort of mistaken value judgment or there is something to work on that you need to go back and you need to address um another myth another uh fault of this myth that you could just become a sage i guess they're all related to this myth that you can easily become a sage and i guess that's related in this idea that if my behaviors and my decisions are up to me then um well then i can become a sage tomorrow because it's up to me but what's meant by up to, and i think this is why it's difficult with control because the dichotomy of control that's a contemporary translation into english and it's not what epictetus would say epictetus is, or, or would say the things up to you and what's meant that by that is the things that are determined by you so your behavior or your um emotional states those are determined by you what that means is that they're not determined by anybody else you might not have control of them in terms of like you might be at a, a stage of viciousness or a stage of ignorance that you can't control that and literally become a sage the next day and that's where control becomes very complicated but it is though that viciousness and that ignorance is still up to you as in as in you know the buck stops with you right like it, it, it's it's a problem that you have that doesn't mean you can fix it in, in a week, in a month, in three months, but, it, but it's, a problem, it's, a, it's a problem with you. So I guess, I guess that would be the main myth, is thinking that we have control over our behaviors and our emotions and our decisions um, as if we could all be the sage the next day. That's not the point. The point is that a good life depends on your behaviors, your decisions, and your emotions, and that those are up to you. There's, there's probably a further point that you can cultivate that over a period of years but i think a lot of people end up being embarrassed that they're not being good stoics or um pretending like they're better stoics than they are and not actually paying attention to the ignorance and the faults and the mistaken judgments and the, and the temptations that they have i know for me for example i would go through like a kind of a, a second order emotion when you start practicing stoicism excuse me <clears throat> where you're angry and then you're also angry that you're angry because you're, you're angry about something. And then you're like angry that you were failed to be a stoic in that situation. And that's just the worst thing you can do because now you're, now you're adding extra problems. Yeah. So I guess, I guess, sorry, that was a long answer. I never really thought about it in this, in this sense before, but I think that's the biggest myth is this idea that having control of our internal life means that you should be able to fix yourself immediately. And if you're not fixing yourself immediately, you're somehow failing uh, as a stoic in progress. And that's where my study into like moral education comes in. I wanna flesh out, what does it mean to be a progressing stoic? What does it mean to be someone who knows that the philosophy, but is still failing? Why is that person still failing? How can they help themselves fail less? That's what I'm looking at is this, is this journey from beginner to sage, not this study of what the sage is, um, because while that's, that's helpful, as, as you talked about, as kind of a role model to look to, nobody's there, um, or at least very, very few people are there. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Oh, no, I, I think that's, um, that's interesting. I know one, um, so yeah, the idea of the growth mindset, I know that's a big concept in education and applying that to, to being a stoic. We're always kind of in progress. I like that, that idea. Um, one myth that I've I don't know if you would call them. myth. One, one idea that I've heard, and I wonder if you want to comment on it, is, is uh, someone who practices stoicism allowed to grieve? Or what does grief from a stoic look like? Yeah, okay. This is, I mean, this is an interesting question. 
And I think this comes down to degrees of progress, right? I think it all mm -hmm. kind of relates to this. And yeah, maybe you've got the best to throw some myths because I'm kind of in this point where it's hard to look at stoicism from that lens of like where I would have looked at it six or seven years ago um, and, and what I would have thought about it coming into it because I know I would have had these like mistakes or stereotypes coming in. Um, so one thing with grief, I mean, people might disagree on this, I think for a sage, what grief is going to look like is going to look very much like the stereotype. I think what a sage for grief is going to look like is they're going to, they're, maybe they're going to cry at happiness because they're going to appreciate having that person in their life. Um, and this is what Epictetus is, encourages, and this is the goal. I think that almost nobody's there. So I think one of the most unstoic things you could do is ignore and deny the fact that you had an attachment to this person and you valued this person or thing, and you probably view the fact that that thing is, is gone or person is gone as a very bad thing. And what you should do is you should stand in honor and be mindful of your emotions and, and at your current, current point in progress. And you should feel that sadness and like let it occur. Seneca talks about this, right? Seneca's writing for people who are in stages of progress. It's like grief, feel that emotion. But what, uh, grief, feel that emotion. But what you shouldn't do is you shouldn't add extra things. So you shouldn't add, you know, um, this belief about how unfair it was to you, for example, because everybody dies. Um, you shouldn't add how surprising it was or how unexpected it was. Because um, once again, you should be, you should, you know, recognize that everybody dies and have that present or cognizant in your mind. Um, so you, you shouldn't, hold on to it for a prolonged period of time for you know longer than is necessary because part of what it means to live an actual human life is to experience loss and to build and move on from that so i think i think i guess the idea would be that the, the myth would be people would once again try to jump to the sage and be like well i'm a stoic so it doesn't matter to me i don't feel anything and they wouldn't honor kind of the current level or the current stage which is like well as you are as a normal person nobody's a stage here you have these connections to people and things and it hurts when when they leave or, or or things happen that you didn't want to happen and you should honor that and respect it but you shouldn't add extra suffering by by lamenting things that aren't true about how unlucky you were about how there's no way you could have expected this or about how fate has been particularly cruel to you um and these kind of things that's that's i would say the stoic response to grief yeah, so they could they could think about the attachments, remember the facts, but don't get into hypotheticals like if I would have only done this and adding more negative emotions to the the situation. Yeah, a kind of a kind of an indulgence. Yeah. Um, in a way that's 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 unnecessary and and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, want to go back to student life a bit. I know. Um, a couple of weeks ago, my friend and I co-wrote a piece for modern stoicism about stoicism and student life. And I'm curious, because you're uh, a student right now, do you believe stoicism could help students? And if so, in what way could stoicism help students? Maybe you could particularly talk about students just in like university who are navigating through that uh, period of time. Yeah, great. I mean, that's interesting. So like um, being a student is hard. There's like a lot of your... I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, I'm not, I'm not going to say that being a university student is particularly hard. I think most things in life are hard, and there's, like, particular difficulties that are involved with it. But in many cases, you're in, you know, 
you're you're at a young age, which is like this really uh, important developmental period, um, and you're kind of away from home, and you're exposed to all these different things and all these different factors and temptations, and you know it seems damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you take school too seriously, there's all these anxieties and fears and like comparisons that come with that. But then if you neglect school, there's kind of a, a process of unhealthy behavior you can fall into, and then you'll have to pay for the consequences later. So it's a really, really difficult balance. I mean, first and foremost, I think things like the dichotomy of control, things like mindfulness, um, these are just helpful things that will help anybody. So I think that I think that, that is a thing to recognize as a student and to take into account um, and, to, and to employ. I think in another way that stoicism can help students, um, hmm, let me think about this for students in particular. I think this is a, I think this is a difficult time of managing expectations and manage, managing um, workload. And there's, you have peer pressure and you have uh, academic expectations. So just this idea of focusing on what is up to you um, to navigate those kind of situations, focusing on getting as much work as you can get done and things like this. Um, okay, so here's an idea. So another thing um, that Epictetus talks about is he talks about recognizing your capacities and you know, honestly, uh, introspecting upon what you are inclined to do, both in terms of talent and in terms of preference, and constructing a life around that. And I think that's really helpful. I think a lot of times when students suffer, you know, they put something in there like, oh, I wanna be a doctor, or I wanna be a lawyer, at least when I see people struggle, and they don't really wanna do it. And this is kind of this attachment to like perception. They just wanna do something that's impressive, that makes the parents happy, or they just want to make a lot of money. Um, and then you end up, you know, I, I knew people in, in, in law school, and you end up struggling quite a bit because, you know, things eventually at a certain point get quite hard. And if you're not inclined towards it, and you're not passionate about it, you're going to hit a real wall. And then, you're, and then there's this almost sunken opportunity cost, right? What do you do if you're four years into an engineering degree, and you hate engineering, you know? First of all, if you, can, if you, if you quit, well, there is a waste of four years. But then what are you going to do? You're going to go into become an engineer, even though you don't like engineering. So, and then what do you do? You quit after five years and you've wasted, uh, you've wasted 10 years of your life. There's this issue. And I think being a student is a really important time to kind of introspect on what you like to do and what you're good at and, and reflect upon those and do that, do that honestly. Um, in terms of advice, I would give, I always give PhD students is like, you know, make sure you would do this even if you wouldn't get a job. And that's a good way to know that you're being motivated by the good. You're being motivated by your genuine interest and in what's important and what's valuable to you. Um, and so I, I think I would give the same kind of advice to students. As difficult as it might be, as hard as it might be now, um, make sure you're being motivated by a genuine interest. And that doesn't mean, you know, that doesn't mean everybody needs to do like liberal arts and um, there, there isn't room for anything, for anything else. But there should always be that kind of that spark and that passion, that genuine drive towards what you do. Um, and, and this comes down to Epictetus' kind of reflection upon our own natural capacities and our own natural inclinations. I mean, Epictetus says this, not everybody's gonna be a philosopher. Not everybody's inclined to a life of philosophy. Well, the same way not everybody's inclined to be an athlete. You have to check your body, you know, check, check your interests. Likewise, um, you know, some people are, are inclined towards the political life. So just, just figure out your inclinations and do something that suits that. And I think that will, that will if, you, if you 
if you do that, a lot of the other things will fall into place because you won't find it as difficult to get the motivation to stay on track. You won't find it as difficult to ignore um, peer pressure or temptation because you're not going to like those things as much as you like what you're doing mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really interested in that, uh, that topic, especially that idea of trying to find your passion in school. Mm-hmm. I've been reading a lot about that. I don't know if you've read um, So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal okay, Newport. No. It's uh, an interesting book that talks about how rather than being preoccupied when we're young about finding our calling, trying to just try different things out and then seeing what we're good at, seeing what speaks to us and just going through those paths rather than declaring something like I want to be a lawyer and then going down that path and realizing, well, well, I liked reading and writing, but why don't I like law? Well, they're two different, two different things. So yeah, I really like that idea of just uh, being patient and realizing that paths will eventually open themselves up in some way. Um, yeah, and this is kind of, I mean, I mean, let me incorporate this more into like, because I think this is just good advice, but let me take it in a bit of a stoic direction. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's so valuable about stoicism, it says that the, the highest good is virtue. What we're trying in every situation is to be a good person. And when you do that, you can turn every situation to your advantage. Because in any situation, there's an opportunity to be a good person or to make the best of what you have. So one of the biggest insights to Stoicism when I began studying it is this idea of just taking things back to its core. So when I began to study Stoicism, I was really into sport. And instead of this idea of like, well, I want to win or I want to um, you know, become national champion or something like that, when you take it to like, I want to compete well, you know, I want to be a good compete. You take it back to this more core concept. I want to execute my virtue in competition, you know? Well, that you can apply to anything. You know, I can compete well when I go to a conference for stoicism. I can compete well when I write a paper, when I write a book. That kind of core value of like testing myself against difficult situations and trying to, to succeed and, and learn from those difficulties. That's a core value that, that you can really, um, is really dynamic and really versatile. So this idea you had of like, you know, the person likes reading and writing and they immediately go into being a lawyer. And then the issue is they got too external. They got too far away from the mm-hmm. core of, of this like really virtue or this essential value. So the thing is like, maybe you like reading and writing and you like reading and writing because you like communicating with people. You like uh, sharing knowledge. You know, you find some sort of core value there. And if you have that core value, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, you can do that as a lawyer. You can do that um, as an engineer, as a, tr- as a tradesman, as a, uh, as a teacher, you can, you can actualize that value of communicating with people and sharing knowledge and value in anything. So yeah, one of the most, then, then it becomes, you get less anxiety about how you're going to turn out because it becomes less about getting the right job and more about how can I turn the job or path I'm on into a way to actualize this kind of value that I have. Mm-hmm. And that for me was really, was really insightful and really a, a big paradigm shift when I first started studying stoicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, almost kind of reframing value judgments as well. Like a lot of students think when they have um, kind of student jobs, whatever you want to call them, working at, you know, a restaurant or something as a server, they think this is like the worst. I can't wait till I am able to get a quote unquote career. But realizing the silver lining there and that there are so many great opportunities built into that job that could allow you to practice virtue. I think um, there's opportunity in everything. So for sure. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The last, yeah. go ahead. Oh, no, that's it. That's just, I no. just, that, that reframing, 
that reframing as ways to cultivate virtue. And, and it doesn't, I think the thing when people are starting, like virtue sounds quite big, but you can even like, again, you can even just pick this, uh, some sort of core value, you know, like of, of resiliency, um, of uh, innovation, of some sort of like, there, there's, there's always some sort of core value that can be actualized in any situation, even if it's, even if it is um, not what you want to do for the rest of your life. And that's just, mm -hmm. that's a healthy, productive way to look at things, I think. Mm -hmm. For sure. Uh, the last couple questions I have are more to do with you. So I'm curious, I asked this to almost everyone I, I have on, including uh, the other podcast I have, Philosophy in Motion, I asked the same last three questions. So what books have had the biggest impact on your life? Oh, geez. Um, so, I mean, just off the start, it would have to be Epictetus's Discourses. I mean, if I, I don't know if I would even be doing a PhD at this point if I didn't read that book, right? I think what you do is, I think there's a couple points in your life where you really feel a passion in the pit of your stomach. And if you encounter those moments, you should pursue it. It's like we talked about, about finding your inclinations. If, if, if life is lucky enough to give you, you know, that sign that this is something that really makes you happy, you should pursue it. And that's what I felt reading the discourses. I mean, everybody has a, a book that they turn back and refer to. I think previously, or for many people still, it's, it's, it's the Bible or religious texts and philosophy. Uh, Stoicism is not a religion for me, but it is a, yeah, a system of value that grounds me um, and helps me. And this is one that I, that I consistently um, go back to. Um, and then other than that, I just, I, 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 do really like, uh, I do really like fiction. I think reading fiction is very important. It's a way to see these kind of philosophical problems actualized. Um, and so my, uh, my two favorite books would be Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky mm -hmm. and uh, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And I think both of those are, are very philosophical texts um, where you see these, you know, one of the things that's so valuable about Stoicism as opposed to reading something like Aristotle or the problem people have with academic philosophy is it's not motivating sometimes if you see it systematized in just these lines and these premises. But, you know, if you look to something like the Bible, which is filled with these allegories and these stories, um, that's very motivating for people and very inspiring for people when it's within our so I think literature can have uh, the same effect on people and being very motivational and very inspirational in terms of actualizing philosophical ideas. And I think those are two books that do it very, very well. Yeah, awesome. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self, say maybe one who is just exiting high school or entering university? I think it comes down to this idea of path. I think it comes down to this idea. I think the advice that I would give is that, you know, because when I started, I, I wanted to be a jiu-jitsu athlete when I started school. And school was just the thing I was doing just to get an undergrad, just so I, you know, if, if my sport career didn't work out, I could, I would at least have a, a degree. Mm -hmm. um, and then, like, I, I, I fell in love with, with philosophy. And a part of me was, like, there was this weird identity shift from, like, an athlete to a philosopher. And I think the advice would just be that, you know, you might have something you really like to do now, but that's not the only thing you'll ever like to do. And there's, there's many different ways, or at least, at least more than one way to be happy and to like actualize value. So if you, if something seems tempting, pursue that and, 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 and see if that, see it where that road goes and don't block yourself off. It's the same kind of thing. Don't streamline yourself too early on one particular path mm -hmm. um, and be open to different opportunities and different uh, passions. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you read the book Excellent Sheep by William Derejewitz? 
No, you got you have to give me a list of book recommendations. Yes, that's uh, that one addresses that exact problem. Um, he was um, he taught at Yale, um, and then he he left to just uh, write independently. But he wrote a book called Excellent Sheep, all about students who um, are going down that Ivory League school path and how they're so preoccupied with going down a particular path, wanting to pursue a particular career, but he's kind of like, well, slow down because probably two to three years from now, your priorities will be completely different. You'll like different things and that don't categorize yourself in that box. It's a, it's a great book. He's written a lot of other great books about how Jane Austen's changed his life and how literature has kind of uh, practical applications. So, Oh, great. For sure. Check that one out. Um, this is a question for you. Last question. Um, what is next? for yourself so obviously you're uh, in your fourth year of the phd i mean do you have anything else uh, you're looking forward to in this next upcoming year with your research or outside your research i'm hoping to graduate next year so then then the goal at that point would be to uh do to hopefully start teaching or, or get a job somewhere as a professor i think what i want to mm -hmm. do is i want to um well, i think my real passion is i think there's a lot of people that are doing there's a lot of people who are really interested in stoicism and there's a lot of really um, excellent academics saying really interesting things about stoicism and I, I i kind of see my goal at this point in my life to hopefully bridge that gap because philosophy really changed and improved my life but up to a certain point i didn't even know it existed right until like mm -hmm. third year university i didn't even know philosophy was a thing it sounded like this weird thing that didn't have anything to do with me and it was more about these like unhelpful unpractical ideas um so so you know, if I can hopefully become a professor and in some capacity help through teaching and writing, bridge that gap, that would be the goal. So next year is going to be the last year of the PhD and then looking to, to, to send out those job applications and, you know, hopefully continue along with that. For sure. Well, I wish you luck when it comes to um, your job uh, pursuits and the last yeah. year of your uh, PhD. And uh, thank you for again coming on. I really appreciate your unique insight on stoicism, especially being 27. I'm 27 myself. And so oh, it's interesting seeing young people uh, curious about stoic philosophy, because I think, you know, we have a great head start on our life in terms of being able to, you know, realize these principles and have a good perspective on life and reframe things in a positive light. So thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I like the work you're doing here. It's great.